Hello and welcome to The Herd Has Spoken, a podcast brought to you by Muskox Men's Apparel. Hello, Muskox Herd. Brad Hoos, founder of Muskox and host of The Herd Has Spoken. Really excited about episode 21 with Lee Jelinek today. Lee is a chief innovation officer of United Wholesale Mortgage, uh, also a former professional hockey player who has some fantastic experiences on Wall Street and with Ford Motor Company. Uh, We get into some of Lee's adventures um, in the business world about a couple of really tough conversations um, with two CEOs, uh, one former, one current of uh, Ford Motor Company. So I think there's a lot to learn from Lee as, as part of this. Um, one of the things that I love about Lee is his positivity and, and the importance of believing in one another. Um, those are great attributes. And again, I know I learned a lot from Lee. So before we get started with today's episode, I just want to remind you about Muskox Men's Outdoor Apparel. If you haven't yet had a chance to check out Muskox, do yourself a favor and go to gomuskox.com for the fantastic gear you need for your next adventure. But with no further ado, I'm very excited to share my conversation with Lee Jelinek. Lee Jelinek, welcome to The Herd Has Spoken. Brad, really happy to be here. I've been very excited about this day for uh, for a little while now. Yeah, well, I want to I want to just go ahead and jump right in. Excuse the dad joke, which you might not have even picked up on. But tell me what you know about Jump Magazine. Oh no, you didn't. You you didn't. Oh man, that one is a blast from the past. Jump Magazine was a short lived but prolific uh, magazine, teen magazine. Uh, probably, uh, had an amazing run. I would say maybe between 1998 and 1999, but I happened to be, uh, in, I think the first issue there was, uh, I was walking across, I was a, was an undergrad at Yale. I can't believe you pulled this one out, man. You did. <laughs> I was walking across the campus at Yale. I think I was a sophomore and you know, this, uh, young lady walks up to me and says, Hey, I work for jump magazine. Uh, we're, we're, we've got our premiere issue coming up and we're doing a feature on Ivy league guys. And I thought, and she said, are you interested? You know, it's this whole, this whole art, this whole theme of, are, the, are you guys looking for brains or beauty? And, and I mean, you know, look, I'm 19 or 20 walking across campus, going to class. I mean, it took me about three seconds to say, sure. So anyway, uh, I, it's funny because I'm moving right now and I think I'd blocked that one out, but I, I found a copy of the job magazine. Uh, that, and I don't think that I don't think the magazine stayed in business too long, <laughs> which is really a shame based upon the the spread that I, I've heard rumblings about of you and a couple of your your teammates on the on the Yale hockey team. But uh, I, I, obviously, you've had a fantastic you know career that spans across professional hockey and Wall Street and being a youngest executive at, at Ford and, and now the chief innovation officer, whatever the heck that means. We'll get back to that at, at United Wholesale Mortgage. But I want to go back to your childhood in New Jersey. What, what was, the, what were things like in the Jelinek household? Yeah. You know, growing up and I, and I, I appreciate the homework you've done there growing up in New Jersey. I, I always say, you know, New Jersey is the most densely populated state in the U S so really only the strong survive in New Jersey. So let's just get that out there. Uh, but 
But no, growing up in New Jersey, I mean, I, you know, I had one sister. Uh, mom and dad were great. Um, yeah, I, I, my parents worked very hard. Mom was stay at home and, and very dedicated to, to making sure my sister and I kind of had what we needed to grow and, and succeed. And my, my dad was a, a very hard worker and a successful businessman in his own right. But it but took some risks along the way. I mean, I remember you know, I got to New Jersey when I was nine, but I was, I was born in Toronto. I lived in Calgary for a bit and Houston, Texas, and then ended up in New Jersey. And one of the things that stuck out in my head, uh, my, my dad was in the newspaper business and he was with a company and uh, it was with a newspaper in, New, in Houston that had been uh, had acquired by a, a competitor. And he didn't see eye to eye with uh, the company that, that acquired the newspaper and he, he resigned. And I remember there was about nine months, 10 months when I was eight, nine years old, but my dad was unemployed. And so we didn't know where the next paycheck was. I mean, we were fine. They had saved money, but he was unemployed and we didn't know where we were going to, where the next job was going to be. I mean, at one point we thought we were moving to Puerto Rico. We thought we were moving to Colorado. We thought we were moving to San Diego and it ended up being New Jersey and um, yeah, got to New Jersey and, and, and the company he was with, uh, he was like the number three or four person. It was a company that owned uh, you know, some daily newspapers and some weekly newspapers. And within a few years of being there, company was in chapter 11 bankruptcy. And again, back to this uncertainty in, in my house and kind of emerged, the, the company was, was acquired by uh, some private equity to come out of bankruptcy. And when the dust settled, they made my dad the CEO. And so you know, my dad had been someone who, you know, he was born in Northern Ontario, a town called Sudbury. Both of my parents are from there. And you know, he, he, was, uh, he played college football in Canada and, and a little bit of semi-pro uh, football in Canada in a, in a league just below the CFL. You know, my parents are both very hard workers, very dedicated, and they believe so much in the American spirit that even though they, they, were, they were longtime Canadian residents before being in the U.S., they really identified with, you know, in the U.S., it doesn't matter your pedigree. It doesn't matter you know, the great thing about our country. It doesn't matter who you know or who's in your network as much as how hard you're going to work and can you do the job. And so uh, seeing my dad kind of go from these periods of uncertainty in the middle of his career, late 30s, early 40s, to then becoming CEO and uh, you know, newspaper industry is not easy, of course, but he, but he was able to, to take that company public you know, by 1997. And, uh, you know, the ending wasn't great. Uh, you know, 12 years later, we can talk about that 13 years later, what happened to him and, and, the, and the business. But uh, I just saw then that a couple of things really stuck out to me. One, uh, hard work is there is no replacement for it. It's the number one ingredient for success. And then dedication to, to family, which is what I got from my mom. Um, you know, so seeing those two. And so my sister and I were you know, very lucky. And uh, our life was much about sports at that time. And, and I ultimately ended up going and playing hockey at Yale University. And my sister ended up getting a uh, soccer scholarship to Syracuse. And so it kind of felt like that was just the normal thing. I mean, when I look back and you see you know, two kids both go on and play Division One sports, uh, you know, I, I realize now having a bunch of kids of my own, how, how rare and, and, and how hard that would have been and how much that's a reflection of my parents. So longer answer than you were looking for, but uh, there you go. No, that's, that's great. What, what were the expectations like in your house in terms of academic and athletic success for you and your sister? Yeah, I, I think, you know, when I think about, if I go back to that environment, it was almost like, if you weren't doing well in school, nothing else mattered, you know, with regard to, of course, be a good person, you know, be a decent human being, but, but outside of sort of the basics of being polite and respectful, uh, my parents instilled in me, 
hey, there's one thing that matters here and it's school and everything else in your life is second to that. And so it wasn't like they forced us with tutors and forced us with a bunch of extra work. And it wasn't like there was summer school. It was more just like, hey, this is your main priority. You got to go handle this. And, and that's, you know, I'm, that's the, I weren't saying that when I was six, but, you know, by the time I was 12, 13, it was pretty clear, hey, we'll support you. We'll, you know, we'll travel all over the country for your hockey or, or baseball or, or whatever it is. But if you're, not, if you're not doing well in school, if you're not being your best in school, all this stuff's going to go away pretty quickly. And so I think that was where, you know, there was, uh, you know, there was this, this instilled value of working hard and working hard at things that are really important, like, like education. Yeah. So hard work sounds like it's the foundation for everything that you guys did in, in your family. And obviously it's been a, a key part of, of your success. Um, as you, as you were growing up, clearly athletics were a big deal in, in your family and you were pursuing both baseball and hockey. And this seems to me like probably one of the first really big decisions that you had to make in your life in terms of which sport you were going to continue to pursue. How did you go about making that decision? That's a, that's, I appreciate the question, Brad. So it was hard because when I was uh, 15 or 16, it, it started to be clear that I was pretty decent hockey player. And, you know, there was some uh, Ontario hockey league teams that were scouting me and uh, a couple of NHL scouts had come to see me. And obviously there were some college scouts coming and they were all saying to me uh, that in order to reach my potential in hockey, I was going to have to leave New Jersey. And it was either go, go out to Iowa, the Midwest, Iowa or, or Nebraska and, and play in the United States hockey league, the USHL the top level junior league or go into, go to new England and, and go to prep school. And they basically, I mean, I had NHL scouts, college scouts basically saying, look, you've got potential 15, 16 year old, but if you stay here in New Jersey, it's not a hockey hotbed. It kind of is now, but back then it wasn't in the late nineties. You can kiss your hockey career goodbye. At the same time, I was, had been a pretty decent ball player and, and had kind of been lucky to grow up with a group of, of very good ball players. Uh, my, my, my best childhood friend growing up was a, was a guy named Kevin Barry who ended up pitching parts of, of five, six seasons with the Atlanta Braves. So he was my grade and he was my best buddy. And uh, I had an, another really close friend that ended up playing, going on a baseball scholarship to Drexel. So it was a good group of, of, of uh, you know, of, of baseball players. Another, another baseball player ended up going and playing basketball at Lehigh. So really good athletes. And and I started to get some attention in baseball that I didn't expect to get. And it was from really cool schools. It was like Ohio State, Wake Forest. These were schools that were sending me letters, inviting me out. And, um, and, and so I actually got to a point where I said, well, I, I don't want to leave New Jersey. I want to prove that I can carve my own path as, as an athlete. I really enjoy where I live. I don't want to give up my last two years of high school to go live in, in, a, you know, in a billet family in Iowa. Uh, I certainly, my, well, my father let me go to a training camp in the OHL, the, the max you could stay was 48 hours before you lose NCA eligibility. So I stayed 48 hours and came home. Um, but I, I, you know, it, I, the decision went on really late. And I actually remember, and I give this advice to, to, to kids that I talk to all the time, and whether they're, they're athletes that are being recruited or just kids that are trying to make that decision, where am I going to go to school? You feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. And if you don't get in somewhere, or if 
you know, if uh, you make the wrong decision, and and I look back and say, look, there it, it, there really aren't wrong decisions. You're you're going to end up making the right one as long as you you bring your your A game wherever you go. And I'll I'll speak a little bit. There's a quote that I heard later on in life where I look back on that and say, well, of, of course that's the way it works. But <laughs> it really came down to I found myself having an opportunity with Yale hockey. There were a few other Ivy League schools that were very interested. And, and the baseball schools were all over the map. And I remember my dad just sat down with me and said, look, you've made pretty solid decisions on the ones we've let you make. My mom kind of, she chimed in too. And she just said, look, there, you've got a chance to go play Ivy League hockey. We've, we grew up near Princeton watching some Ivy League hockey games. And they just said, look, I, you know, we'll support you, whatever you do. But uh, this is something you'll, you'll, you'll thank us later for kind of steering you in this direction. And, and so then I ended up uh, you know, going to Yale and of course the culture on the Yale hockey team. And th those are some of my best friends in the world today. I still talk to, I have a text chain with the guys from the 01 Yale hockey class that we talk every day. So one of the best decisions I ever made, but at the time you feel like, oh, I'm going to set my life on the wrong track if I, if I screw this up and it's, it's just not true, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I, I love hearing that. And I, and I feel like there might be a, a little nugget in here that that's that's pretty interesting because I, I feel like there's something in you that really seemed to be motivated by being able to prove people wrong and so maybe the maybe maybe I'm off base but what what I'm hearing you is like there was something extra satisfying for you about being able to stay in your we'll, we'll say it, your de facto home state of of New Jersey and being able to grow to a spot where you could get that d1 hockey scholarship and pursue that path in a way that once you got to D1 hockey in the Ivy League, I mean, clearly that's, that's pretty well respected in terms of, of, of making it. And, and I'm curious if I'm reading that correctly, that finding a way to prove other people wrong added a little extra fuel to your fire. You know what, it was the kind of the first time I was able to really do that in, in a big sort of so, somewhat of a public way. And absolutely. And that's, that's kind of, that's been a theme that I've revisited from time to time. My, my high school hockey coach used to say, you know, the, the best way to get Lee to do something is tell him you don't think he can, he can do it. Tell him you don't think he can accomplish it and accomplish it. And he's going to go do it. And, and, and that was very gratifying. I, I went into Yale as a, you know, as a young freshman. So I was one of the few I mean, college hockey is known for 20 year old freshmen, you know, graduate high school from wherever you are go play two years of junior, come in as a 20 year old. I, I was able to come in, you know, as, as a just turned 18. And it was pretty gratifying to be able to say, Hey, I did it my way. There had only been one other player from New Jersey up to that point. His name was Jim Dowd. He played, played 10 plus years in the NHL. He was the only other one that had gone right from New Jersey, right to, uh, to division one. I. I think he went to Lake Superior state. So yeah, you're hundred percent right. And, and I, I, I revisit that multiple times in my journey. I love it. Well, I, I wonder here if maybe your your coach told you that you couldn't get into the penalty box because I'm looking back at your stat sheet from your last year at year at Yale, 28 games, two goals, six assists. So of course, eight points, but 52 penalty minutes. So <laughs> I'd, I'd love to hear from you. What, what, is, what is your, what is your strategy on like, how, how would you consider your, your strategy on the ice? to be reflective of who you now are in, in business. Yeah. So it's, when I look back on college hockey and, and what it taught me, and I, I went into Yale as a highly touted offensive player, as a scorer, uh, I certainly hadn't been playing at as, at as high a level of other people that were there. 
and other, other people that had come from some of these other places that I chose not to go to. Uh, and so when I got there, I really had to scrap and claw and did not play a whole lot as a freshman. We had a very good team and really had to grind my way into the lineup. And, and by basically make, get, not giving my coach a chance to not play me. And so I, I clawed my way in as sort of a third or fourth line checking line player. And that was kind of how I played the four years. What's funny is I ended up, when I got to the professional ranks, I sort of got back to, I was, a, I was one of those rare kids that was a, a better pro than a college player. And I played pretty, pretty regular for the, the, the you know, three of the four years in college. But I certainly realized that at that time to play as a young freshman or young sophomore at Yale, I had to have every detail of the game. I had to be prepared on and off the ice. And I think those are the, those are the things that really I carried from that period of my life into business, which is, you know, there is no excuse for not being prepared and there's nothing negative that comes from preparation and work ethic. So I made it so that I was always coming into the beginning of the season, you know, crushing it in all of the off ice testing, you know, having increased you know, muscle mass, decreased body fat, increased speed, measurable things. And, and so then on the ice, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, it's, it's competition, you know, it's like organized battle. And the way I look at it is um, you're not always going to win. There are going to be mistakes you're going to make, but the, the inexcusable element is to not be outworked, never be outworked. And so for me, I always played a very physical game. I defended my teammates. Um, I thrived on kind of winning physical, you know, combative battles. And, and probably even to my detriment, I focused even more on that and playing that super scrappy brand of hockey and even uh, maybe skewed to sacrificing some offense and some skill that I, that I ended up leaning back into for the couple of years I was able to play pro hockey. But it's that scrape and claw. If you're going to beat me, uh, I'm going to make you feel some pain along the way. What what a great attitude, and and that's obviously something that's that translates directly into the business world, and and that's something I can I can certainly personally uh, you know attest to, as as well. One of the things that you've said to me is that believing in others is a superpower. So you've clearly you know achieved a lot in your athletic and and now professional endeavors. Who believed in you to allow you to achieve your goals? Yeah, that's uh, that's a that's core to who I am is that believing in others is truly like giving them a superpower. And I, I, it'd have to start with my mom and dad because there were there were points in time where I didn't maybe believe in myself as much as I should. I mean, we're we're fragile beings, we're humans, and so you know you you go on this journey and you're not always riding on a high. You you take some blows, you get knocked down, and so I think when uh, I look back, it was obviously my parents. I mean, even when I didn't think I was good enough to play college hockey, or I didn't think I was a good enough college player to play pro, um, or if I go further, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't think I would get into, you know, when I applied for business school, I, I applied to the top four. I mean, I applied to, to where you went. I applied to Booth. I applied to Harvard. I applied to Wharton and I applied to Kellogg and, and uh, you know, maybe you throw Stanford in. I didn't apply to Stanford, but you throw Stanford in there. And I think that's probably generally the top five. And I, I mean, my, I didn't think I'd get in. It's just they're that hard to get in. And, and uh, my, da my dad, my mom, they believed that I would, you know? And so I think it's them. And then, and they, they played different roles in the way they believed in me. And then after that, though, along the way, 
you know, I have to say the ones that really stick out are when I got to Ford, uh, I was very lucky that both Mark Fields and Jim Farley, who, who are have both, you know, Jim is now the CEO and Mark had been the CEO, both uh, took an interest in me and over time mentored me. And sometimes that meant giving me really hard feedback. You know, like I, re I remember different times, both of them called me to their office to tell me, you know, not, hey, you're doing a great job or not, uh, you know, everything you touch turns to gold, but hey, there's like two or three things you need to fix right now about the way you're approaching certain things. Um, and it was kind of the hard, and, and they shared it in a certain way where they had gone through and gotten some of that advice on their own too. And I can go into, I can go into to sort of two, two of those conversations that I remember very explicitly. But I think those two, and, and there was others that, that were senior to me at Ford along the way that believed in me to put me in, in a job that I certainly on paper wasn't qualified for, where suddenly I'm leading a team of people that have way more experience than I do at whatever it is that that team is doing. Um, so I, I would say my parents, I would say those two, you know, I, I, I had some others, uh, I, I had a couple of professors back at Wharton that that certainly saw that I, I had a very, very unique interest in marketing and in operations. So th those are the ones that, that uh, you know, kind of stick out for me. And, you know, there were some coaches too. Um, I mean, I think the one that probably sticks out the most is uh, there, was, there was a guy named Kirk Tomlinson who, who I played for in Flint for the Flint Generals. And this is where I, I just kind of, I played four years in college as sort of a scrappy third and fourth liner and I got to Flint and, and he looked at me and said, Hey, you, you can scale like the wind, you can hit like a truck and you can hammer the puck. Like you're, you're not a third liner. You should be thinking about the power play. You should be thinking about the th first line. I'm going to put you with, uh, you know, with two veterans. And it was just like those moments in time when, when these, when these people believed in me, it did feel like it gave me that superpower and it transformed what I thought I was capable of. And so I try to do that every day with the teams I lead at work with the, the athletic teams I coach. I think the challenge is sometimes where you fall the shortest on that, and this is where we're human, you know, where I grade myself when I'm lying in bed at night, I feel like I, you, you fall shortest with the people closest to you. You know, I will, I will make sure the kids I'm coaching on the team feel like I believe in them, all the people that I, that I have the, the fortune to lead at work that I believe in them. And then maybe I'm coming down too hard on my kids at home or, or, you know, or maybe I'm not just given enough of that belief you know, that superpower into my wife who's carrying so much of the load. We've got three kids, three step kids We're you know, we're building a house. So, uh, you know, and then I would say to, to, to close the loop on your question, uh, my wife does believe in me. And, and I think that gives me a little bit of a superpower every day when I, you know, when I get out of the bed or I, I leave the house. And that's it's, it's so, so powerful to, to have that. And what, what I, what I really like about what you mentioned there is that some of those people who believed in you the most were the ones giving you the most challenging feedback. And, and I think that's so important. And, and I'd love to hear those conversations that you had with, with Jim and, and Mark, but just to set the stage for, for those that, that aren't maybe as familiar with Lee's background. So you went from college hockey, you went to pro hockey, and then you, you had a knee injury, and then you went and moved to Wall Street. People kind of thought you were crazy then moving to Wall Street to go work at Ford. And now you're climbing the ranks at Ford and you're getting feedback from two CEOs at, at Ford, as, as we can now say with the benefit of, of hindsight. 
And I'd love to hear what those conversations are, are like, because obviously you're, you're a high riser, but at the same time, like you, you've still got a lot to learn. And, and what were those conversations like? And what did you take from them? Yeah, so, so I'll, I'll, I'll take a, just a tiny segue because you hit on a theme before and I want to just, you just sort of summarize a couple of them. So it's that whole, uh, that whole notion of proving people wrong. And so uh, I, will get, I will answer your question, but you know, after pro hockey and I wanted to keep playing, I, I, the Buffalo Sabres gave me a chance. They had signed me in, in Rochester, New York in the American Hockey League, which, which is the second best league in the world. And that, that was uh, a level I never thought I would get to. I'm, there I am, one step below the NHL. And you know, this knee just starts to get worse and worse. And it, it, it was actually an injury that dated back to my sophomore year of college that just, it was degenerative cartilage in the kneecap. And you know, I didn't think in, in May or April of my last pro season, I didn't think by September I'd be two surgeries and, and retiring. But I had a great three, four, five years, about probably four years at JP Morgan. And it was during the credit bubble, 03 to 07. And when I was leaving, and we, everyone was making a lot of money. I had had a lot of success. There was, you know, the, the trading desk at, you know, JP Morgan is obviously one of the preeminent banks in the world. And I remember the, the head of the desk said, when I told him I'm, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm going to business school, you know, you're, you're crazy. Why, you, you can stay here. You're going to be making all this money. You'll be running the desk in a few years. You'll be making all this money. This is why people go to business school, Lee. You're crazy, right? Exactly. That was it. It's, you're, you're, you're in a job that everyone wants to go to, a, go to Wharton to come back and get, or go to, you know, go to Booth and come back and get. And I just said, look, I, I was so appreciative of my time at JP Morgan and the people there and the culture there. But I just said, there's, there's things that I don't know or do very well now. And I want to go and invest in myself and I want to learn more. And I've got passions about consumer behavior. I've got passions and interest in supply chain and, and, and manufacturing. And I want to go study this and learn this. And I just, I trust that if I get off this train, I'm going to get on another train that's going just as fast. And so I went, and when I was in there, it was kind of the same thing. Um, I, I went and got an internship at Ford Motor Company in the summer of 2008. And yeah, we all remember the world was falling apart in 08. And uh, it, it was, it was an amazing time at Ford because I found this culture of people that they were not going to let that ship go down and some amazing leadership there. You know, Alan Mulally had just gotten there and that, that man is a unifier of all unifiers. And, you know, Jim Farley had just gotten there, you know, and, and I got there and I saw this culture, the, the, the industry was interesting to me. And I, I got back to Philadelphia and my, my dad was, uh, my dad was very sick. He had, he had passed away not long after that. But I remember having this conversation with him saying, hey, hey, dad, I, I want to go back and work at Ford. I want to go be part of this, this, this company that's going to do everything they can not to file bankruptcy, everything they can to make it out. And he, he just said, look, I, you saw what, what working in the newspaper industry did to me. He said, I worked in a dying industry for 25 years. Every year was do more with less. And, uh, you know, it, it beat you up. And he said, are you sure you want to go sign up for that? That, that? That's what these American automakers look like. I mean, at the time, you can, people that know the history remember you know, Mullally, Nardelli, and, and Wagoner were testifying in front of Congress, asking for money and asking for bailouts. Well, Mullally wasn't, he was there to support the other two. But, right. um, and I said, dad, there's just something special. I want to go, you know? And, and so this, this, these twists and turns, and, and then my decision to join UWM had some similar conversations before I'm sure we'll touch on, but I, I think I just wanted, since you highlighted the journey, 
there was these points in time on the journey where people just said, why are you making that decision? Why are you going in that direction? I mean, consensus would say, go the other direction, go back to Wall Street, stay at Wall Street, you know, don't go to the, don't run into the burning building that is the US auto industry in 2008. And, uh, and I had sort of that faith and belief at that time that by that point, I had realized that I did like proving people wrong. I did like betting on myself. Um, so, so you, you were betting on yourself and you like to prove people wrong, but was there more to it? I mean, why did, why did you believe in Ford at that time? You know, it was, uh, again, it was a very special time. There was a lot going on in my life. I mean, um, you know, my, my now ex-wife and I, we had had our first child. We were living in Philly. My dad was terminally ill with cancer. He, he passed away at, at age 58. Um, you know, the, the sort of financial markets were falling apart. These American institutions uh, like Lehman Brothers and, and Bear Stearns were sort of vaporizing overnight. And the autos were struggling too. And, and, but when I, when I got to Ford, I, I had actually growing up in New Jersey, had never really experienced this, you know, it's truly a family company. I mean, of course you've got the Ford family and there's so many wonderful people in the Ford family that are, that are dedicated, so dedicated to that company, but you also have people that have are third and fourth generation. They're, 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 you know, their mother, their father, their grandfather, their aunt, their uncle all worked there. And so there's, there truly is this family orientation to that company. And, when I got there, it was like the backs were against the wall. It was, I think I was there when they reported a $8 billion second quarter loss, you know, on the way to losing, I think I'm, you know, I might get the numbers wrong, 16 billion in 2008. And the resiliency was something that I had never seen in mass like that. And so for me, I just said, look, I, I want to go, be, I want to be on that team. I want to put that Jersey on. I want to put my oar in the water. I want to row. Uh, you know, there were, so, there were so many great leaders there. And so to me, it was just, it was literally like, you're, you're watching this team play. You get a chance to play for them for the summer as an intern. I said, I, this is it. I want to be here. And not mm -hmm. to mention, I had gone to business school to, to really become an expert in marketing and operations and no better intersection than Ford Motor Company. I love it. So, so you join Ford, you, you make that commitment and now you start to, to rise up the up the ranks a bit, right? You're starting to get some pretty meaningful at bats. You mentioned you had some really fantastic mentors along the way, but there, there was some adversity, right? From, from what you were sharing, but before, and, and there was some conversations where they were saying, Haley, like th this, this stops right now. If you, if you want to continue to, to progress in the, in this company, oh, I'd love to hear more about those conversations. Yeah, they were great. It was great advice. And I, and you know, there, there were other mentors along the way. There was, there was a guy named John Felice who, you know, he ran um, you know, marketing and sales in the U S uh, and, and, and had had a fantastic career there and really was all about teaching and, and developing. And so there were so many uh, folks that, that spent time and took time with me. Uh, another one that comes to mind is Amy Marentic, uh, who, who, uh, you know, she had some huge jobs. She was president of Lincoln China um, yeah, she she ran uh, you know she, she ran a number of the the the, the marketing teams for the Ford cars and, and uh, you know cars and sports cars, but um, you know along the way, so I started to get promoted pretty fast. Part of the part of what worked for me was the same sort of micro strategy that had played out. I I came in in a rotational program, typical of coming out of business school, and there was sort of a specific track you were supposed to go on. And I uh, the first job was sort of a upstream 
product development type role. And then I was supposed to go into a brand manager job. And brand manager sounds great, but when I actually looked at the job, I didn't really see a whole lot of ownership, a whole lot of accountability. It was kind of a jack of all trades, master of none, no PL, no accountability. Someone else was responsible for sales, hitting the sales number. Someone else was responsible for, for the marketing campaign and the marketing metrics. So I said, I don't want to do that job. I want to go be a marketing manager. I want to lead a large advertising agency team. I want to have a budget that I'm going to deploy, that I'm going to be held accountable for. And there were some folks that said, this is nobody in this program you're in. Not a lot of people do that. You're, you're, you're the brand manager is the big job. I just said, I just, I, I don't think I'm going to learn as much in the brand manager job, but I'm not going to have as much of an impact. And right. I went and did it. Um, you know, along the way, I had to turn down some opportunities. I early in my career, they had wanted me to, to move to China and it just wasn't the right time for the family. Um, and so I, I turned that down, which, it, you know, again, I, I was told if you, you turn down a, a, a a promotion, an opportunity to go overseas, man, you're, you're a marked person. You're never getting that opportunity again. And in fact, they asked me two more times and I, you know, both times it just wasn't the right time for the family. And this another time was China and another time was, was Dubai. And it just, it wasn't right now. I, I certainly ended up spending a ton of time in China uh, when, when I was over there uh, with a couple of the other leaders of the Lincoln brand, when we were basically creating Lincoln of China. So spent a lot of time there uh, and, and learned a lot from, from the people and the culture over there. But the, those moments along the way where I got the advice. So the, the, the first one was, was uh, Jim Farley. And I, I had always done my homework and I had always been prepared whenever I was, was, was presenting to, to Jim or any of our other leaders. And you know, Jim had been the chief marketing officer and, and he had had a number of roles and he's a, you know, he's a brilliant man, knows the auto industry you know, better than almost anyone. Um, you know, he, he, he's very direct. And he's got strong opinions. And so, the, you know, there were times when I was rel relatively early in my career where I would get, yeah, I would get in sort of in, into a combative banter with him, which I think he appreciated. Um, but his advice to me at a certain point uh, was, so th there, was, there was a role that I ended up coming into. I, I, it was the, essentially the strategy lead for Lincoln at a time when we were deciding, do we keep Lincoln? And if we keep it, how does it, how does Lincoln become a successful luxury brand? And I, I got put into the role and it had, it had been a promotion and uh, Jim Farley called me to his office and I walked in and I thought he's going to shake my hand and congratulate me and tell me that, uh, you know, you're the right man for the job. We, you're the, you know, this is going to be great. We're going to, we're going to make Lincoln a successful luxury brand. This is like 2013. And instead he says, hey, look, I didn't want you in this job. It's like, what? He said, some other people wanted you in this job. I didn't want you in this job. And I want to tell you why. I said, okay. And he said, you, you're, you talk too much. You know, you're, you're at a point now where you're getting, you're leading larger teams. You have large responsibilities. You need to listen more. I know you do your homework. I know you have the data. You need to listen more. And he actually told me then a story, a very similar story in his career. He had, he had started his career at Toyota where, where a senior executive had had a very similar conversation with him. And he said, look, it changed my approach. And I realized I had gotten to a point where um, I didn't need to prove that I had done my homework. I didn't need to prove that I was smart. I needed to seek to understand other opinions better. And so it was sort of, it was talk less, less of your opinion at this point and, and pull more out of others, pull more and engage people, listen better. 
And it was fantastic advice. And it was, a, it was a very similar conversation I had. It was maybe a year or two later with Mark Fields. And he had, he, again, I was so lucky that, 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 that both of these, uh, these gentlemen had repeatedly made time for me. And he kind of called me in and I had, it had been another promotion and I was actually in a, in a more senior job now responsible for, uh, for most of the marketing for Lincoln in the US. We were doing a campaign with Matthew McConaughey and it was, it was I mean, things were going well. And he called me and he, he, I went to his office, it was 6 a.m., it was dark, it was at the PDC, uh, yeah, the Product Development Center, and he just said, hey, you, you've done great up to this far, but you still are bringing the answers to every meeting. You now have to start becoming a, a better asker of questions. So he really, he told me that you, know, you get to a point where if you try to do the very, the senior job, the, the way you did the junior job, you're going to fail. Because you, there's not enough hours in the day to know every answer. You have to focus on learning how to ask better questions, being more thoughtful. And so the advice I got from both of them was pretty similar. Um, you know, two, two different skills. You know, one is listening and one is actually drawing information and asking questions. But you know, both were pretty hard conversations. So it was kind of like, hey, you've done okay so far, but if you want to keep going, you have to change. And if those, if they, if they hadn't cared, if they hadn't taken the time, you know, I probably wouldn't have had the the success that, that I've had. So I appreciate that very much. Yeah. And I think so many people, when they actually get, uh, get that tough feedback, yeah, it takes a minute to swallow it. It can be, it can be a shot to your ego, but you really wind up appreciating it and respecting people that much more. And, and so one of the things that I'm always talking about with my team is like, Hey, you need to respect your team enough to have that hard conversation. And, and I think it's so great to hear, you know, you talk about those experiences in such a vulnerable way that you had these great, strong leaders tell you like, Hey, here's how, here's how you need to get better. And, and now you're looking back at, at your career and saying like, no, these were critical moments for me where I've really learned I grew and and now you're, you're clearly a better leader for that. And, and I think that's, that's something that's really exciting to see. And I think too many people are quick to hesitate or right, uh, to have those hard conversations, but those are the ones that are, are really meaningful. Um, so yeah, I want to, I want to keep going here in the interest of time. Cause I know we don't have um, all, all day. I would love to you know hear all sorts of stories, but I, I do want to at least get a chance to hear about your transition from Ford, which is a large international corporation, one of the most well-respected, well-known brands in the in the world and then here you transition to this maybe not so little at the time there's still a couple thousand people working for the organization but you you join united wholesale mortgage and you help that organization to grow to a point where it goes public in january of 2021 what what was that decision like for you lee as you left the safe waters of of ford and, and ventured into a high growth organization um, in, in the mortgage industry, a totally different industry? Brad, uh, it was uh, it was certainly, you know, pr- probably the best professional decision I've ever made. And, uh, you know, at the same time, the scariest. And so, you know, I had, I had had this great run at Ford. And, um, you know, I, I had known Matt Ishbia a little, uh, you know, some mutual friends, I'd run into him once in a while, but, uh, you know, sort of out of the blue, uh, you, you know, we got connected and 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 got to talking and 
you know, he said to me, this is probably January of 19. He said to me, Hey, look, we're, we're we are on a trajectory to tr grow tremendously over the next couple of years. You know, we're, we're right now about 2000 people. We are taking share. The, the play we're running is working. Um, you know, I, I'd really like you to come and join. And I kind of said to do what? And he said, well, he said, I, I don't know what we need, but I know there are things that we're not doing today that we're going to need over the next couple of years. And I, I want you to come and figure those out and build them. And so I, you know, again, I, I looked at it and it took me a couple, I came to the company and I had never seen, like, it goes back to my time at 08 when I, the Ford culture impressed me at that point in time. So, okay, now here I am 39 years old. I've been at Ford 10 plus years. I come over to Pontiac, Michigan to this, uh, you know, relatively new campus that, that you know, Matt had, had, had built and moved the company here. He'd moved them from a, a couple towns over and everyone was positive. Everyone was happy. The smiles, the hellos were all genuine. The energy was electric. And I just thought there's no way this is real. Like there's no way I'm going to come back two or three times. I'm going to catch him on a gloomy day. I'm going to come back when it's raining one day. And I, you know, and so Matt and I were talking and, and uh, talking also to our, our chief strategy officer, Alex Elezai. We had some conversations and I kept coming back. And every time there was more people here every time, but there was just uh, you know, this electricity was real. And so I looked at it and I, and I, and, and this was a moment when I, when I went to leave Ford, I did have, I did have people say, look, this is a bad move. You are on a very short list. You know, I, at the time I had been, I'd been promoted to the executive level at, at age 37. I was the youngest executive in the company at that time. And, uh, you know, or so they told me, and I always thought there'd be someone, someone younger, some younger exec somewhere. There's always someone better, but uh, you know, that was one thing they had said. And, and I said, look, you're, there's a huge opportunity cost that you're walking away from. And I looked at it and said, I'm 39 years old. I've never met anyone like Matt Ishbia. You know, he's this dynamic, energetic, positive entrepreneur. I get a chance to work a little closer to home, you know, 15 minute commute, learn an entirely new industry, figure out where the blind sides are and help, help build out and protect those, uh, you know, really walk in with a total blank slate and, 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 and really the culture, the positivity and Matt were the real, you know, those are the real factors. And I just said, look, as hard as this decision feels, if someone came to me and said, this is what I'm facing, I would say you're crazy if you don't give it a try. And so, yeah, that was when I, you know, I, I came in and, and you know, of course, you know, I, I joined in May of 19. We had about 23, 2400 team members. Now we're at uh, almost 9,000. We're the number one wholesale lender in the, in the US six years in a row. We're the number two overall mortgage company in the US. We went public. Uh, we're doing some amazing things, uh, you know, partnering with uh, you know, like, like literally uh, tomorrow where we've donated a, a huge portion of our campus to, to Oakland County so that they can use for a vaccine, vaccine staging site. So it's been a chance to do things I never thought I would do in, in business. And, and, uh, and again, Matt's the real deal working for him. You know, he's uh, he's not Rushmore business type type of stuff. I, I always tell him it's like, if they, if they put one up with uh, you know, Elon Musk and Steve jobs, his, his head should be up there too. Right. He's, he's that kind of leader. Yeah. Those are, those are high accolades, but I think that's something that I hear time and time again from those that have gotten a chance to, to work closely with Matt from, from your perspective, what is it that makes him, such an elite leader. Yeah, you know, he is by far, and this this resonates with me because I I fancy myself as as this way as well. But he is by far the most positive person I've ever met. I you know he he just doesn't 
the the the, the prospect of failure or the the risks associated with a decision do not phase him. And he'll be the first to tell you he's made thousands of mistakes, but he will correct course so quickly that he can't remember what the mistake was because you realize that you admit the failure and you move on, but it's his positivity and it's his energy and it's his passion. And he truly cares. He cares about people. He cares about the business. Um, and, and so, you know, those things, again, you know, I, we, we talked about believing in others is a superpower you can give them. Believing in yourself and being positive just positive alone, I think, is a superpower everyone can choose to give themselves. Oh, we all adversity. You faced a lot in your life. Um, you can either, the, the milk is spilled. You can cry over it or you can get a towel, wipe it up, and just keep charging forward. And that's the amazing thing about Matt. So, Lee, we, we appreciate your insights on Matt and you spending you know, time with us here. But before we let you go, I have just a couple of quick final questions for you. So um, first off, what is your biggest pet peeve? Uh, that's great. So biggest pet peeve would, would probably be, I mean, it's like the flip side of what we were just talking about. You know, as you get into your forties, you start to reflect on what makes you, you, and you, you become a lot more stingy with how you want to spend your time. And you find yourself, you know, doing less things because you feel like you have to, you like to do what you want to. And one of the things I, I found myself, I don't like being around people that are inherently negative for the sake of being negative, you know? And so a pet peeve for me is, when I see, even like it can be kids, right? Teenagers fall victim to this a lot, but just the notion of I'm going to say something with no intention other than it being a negative thought that I'm expressing about something, about the way I feel. Look, we all have bad days, but negativity for negativity's sake is probably my single biggest pet peeve at this point in my life. And I just, I don't want to be around it, you know? And, and so uh, yeah, that, that's my pet peeve. I don't know, what, what, what's your pet peeve? Well, first, let me just say negativity is like parsley, just push that shit to the side of the plate and get it out of here, right? <laughs> my, my, I, my, pet, my, my pet peeve is actually not nearly as, uh, as, as strong and, and impactful as, as yours. I really can't stand it when people don't express a tiny bit of gratitude. And where that really irks me is no courtesy wave when you when you let someone in on the road. So, you know, I do live in Michigan. So here I am making an example of something on the roads. But you know, you, you go out of your way to let someone in you wave them in, and you don't get the courtesy wave back. I don't know why that that always gets under under my under my skin. So um, that that's probably mine. But that's something I just really need to get get over more than anything. Um, I am, you know, gratitude and respect are huge on my list. And it's like, yeah, this is the courtesy wave. Come on, how hard is it? Exactly, exactly. No, I, I, I so, I so appreciate that. And as, as someone that was born in Canada, you, you kind of have to do that. You know, it, it can get into a Canadian standoff at times, almost. And so, you know, no, you go first. No, you go first. No, thank you, thank you. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Right. So you, you, you sort of like program where you have to do that. You have to have that part of you. Um, Lee, what, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, I, it's tough to say one, so I'm gonna say two, but I'll be very brief on them. So the first one is something that, you know, I mean, both my parents instilled. My, my dad was the one who used to say this, but it was, it was like, no matter how good you are at something, there is always someone out there that's better. Someone out there, somewhere else, it's better. And I, I have that in, in the back of my head, and I let it, I use it to fuel. It used to fuel, hey, shoot another hundred pucks. Now it's. 
you know, find 10 more minutes in your day to read two articles in the Wall Street Journal. Find, find a, a little more time, a few more inches in your day to make yourself better, to put yourself in a position to help you and your team and your family succeed. Uh, because there's someone out there that's coming for you and they're, they're, they're born with a little more talent than you. They're born with a little better, better than you. So you have to outwork them. The other is mistakes will happen and you have to just move forward. You know, and this is where, uh, you know, th this is something that it's, it's, it's another one I got from my parents. And I, I think about Tom Brady. I mean, the guy is the greatest quarterback of all time. He's thrown 191 interceptions. So the 191 times, the greatest that's ever lived has done the, has done the ultimate no-no. And what's he do after that happens? He runs off the field. He figures out why the interception happens and he moves on. And you can't be thinking about it after you throw it because you're going to throw some. And sometimes it's going to be your fault. Sometimes it's going to be the receiver didn't run the route right. Those are going to happen in life. When they happen, you have to learn from them and you have to move forward and move forward quickly because uh, you can't look back. You can't change the past. Well, Lee, we, we so appreciate your time and, and we're excited to look forward and continue to, your, to follow your career and the, the growth trajectory of you personally and United Wholesale Mortgage. So we're, we're fortunate to have you as part of the Muskox Herd. We, we appreciate your time and, and are excited to continue to follow your, your successes. Thanks for joining us today. Brad, thank you very much. And there's a uh, courtesy wave to close it out. All right, I want to thank Lee one more time for joining today's podcast. I know I learned quite a bit from him today and, and think there's so much power in the idea of staying positive, believing in other people, believing in yourself, and of course, continuing to work extremely hard every single day. Um, I think Lee's, Lee's a great member of the Muskox herd. We so appreciate his ability to you know, achieve business success and success in ath athletics. Um, I know getting out for, for adventure is an important uh, thing to, to Lee, and it's certainly something that's critically important to us here at Muskox. If you haven't yet checked out the website, um, it is now officially spring. It is time for you to go to gomuskox.com and find yourself some fantastic apparel for your next outing as the weather starts to get a little bit warmer you will be happy that you did so um, one last time i want to say thank you for for lee uh, joining us on the podcast and i hope you learned a thing or two today until next time i'm your host of the herd has spoken bradley hoose